If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 42. And we've been on this journey through Genesis all year long, it seems like, and uh, we have come now in our study of the life of Joseph to chapter 42. And you'll particularly note, if you've been with us on this journey, particularly from last week when we were looking at chapter 41, that the tide has turned for Joseph. Joseph's had a bad run here for a while and uh, sold into slavery by his brothers and then put in, into uh, the, the house of Potiphar and then accused falsely of, of doing things there that, that he had not done and ultimately thrown into prison. Uh, but the tide has turned and now uh, he has become the second in command in all of Egypt because he was able to interpret uh, through God's help Pharaoh's two dreams that he had. And now he is second in command. And, and at the end of chapter 41, we sort of get the full context of just the meteoric rise that, that Joseph has experienced. Because the, the famine that he had predicted that would come and, and would, would decimate the land of Egypt and all the surrounding uh, lands has, has come about. And... So there we read in verse 57 of chapter 41, So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Now, that piece of information, that final verse of, of chapter 41, really sets the stage for a series of reunions that we are going to read about that occur over the next few chapters. In fact, the first reunion takes place between Joseph and his Ten older brothers who actually sold him into slavery. Then, then there's a second reunion that occurs between Joseph and his youngest brother, Benjamin. And then thirdly, there is a reunion that occurs between Joseph and his father. And those reunions begin here in chapter 42 and they stretch all the way through chapter 46. I want us this morning to read just about that first one, that first reunion that takes place when Joseph's eyes lock eyes with his ten older brothers for the first time in 20 years after they had sold him into slavery. So read with me there, beginning chapter 42, verse 1. Before we get to Joseph, though, we move back to the land of Canaan and we read these words. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. 
your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you. You are spies. And in this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for, the, for your, the famine of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the, the, the truth of God's word that we can hear read and we can assemble together to, to read and then allow your Holy Spirit to, to help us understand it. I pray that that would occur this morning. Father, that we would come to understand your word more completely and that it would be applied to our hearts and that we would leave here as changed people. Lord, our prayer is that it would take place not only just for our good, but ultimately for your glory, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week in, in our study of chapter 41, we noted how, how Joseph stood before Pharaoh and how he... Uh, interpreted the dreams that Pharaoh had. Pharaoh had a couple of dreams and, and they disturbed him and, and those dreams ultimately uh, were revealed to, to be about the fact that there were going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And, and when Joseph interpreted those dreams for Pharaoh, uh, he repeated three times back in chapter 41, verse 25, verse 28, and then again in verse 32. He, he basically told Pharaoh, look, God is sovereign. God is the one who is in charge and who will bring the things that you have dreamed about to pass. And in fact, what he says is, look, Pharaoh, there is a God who created everything. And that God who created everything is over everything. And he is involved in his creation. He didn't just create like a watch that he winds up and sits around on the table and just lets it do its thing. And then eventually it'll wind its way down and it'll come. It won't no, it'll no longer exist. No, God is actually involved in his creation. And he's bringing his will to pass through his divine providence. Well, that was not only the theme, really, of what we studied in chapter 41. It's the theme that continues to show itself 
here. God's providence is the overarching theme of our passage this morning. But, as one has described it, it is God's dark providences. It is, it is as another has put it, it is his severe mercies that we come face to face with in our text today. Dark providences and severe mercies, they were really described as, better defined as the hard times of life. It, it's, it's when things happen to us that often are difficult for us to understand. In fact, Tim Keller, in a book that he has written about the life of Jonah in the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah, he says that the benefits of God's dark providences and his severe mercies are often more clearly seen with hindsight because, he says, they are events that were difficult or even excruciating at the time, but they later came to yield more good in our lives than we could have foreseen. The text before us today, I believe, shines a light on those dark providences and on those severe mercies that God will often allow to come into our lives but he uses those things to turn sinners to him. In fact, that's how I want us to look at this text this morning. And the first thing that I want you to note, and I've given you a number of points on your outlines, are just one words, but they point us to some of the dark providences that are in our text. And so the first one that you'll note on your outline this morning is this. It's the word famine. Famine. There was a famine in the land. I should point out to you, as I did at the beginning, that the last three chapters, all the, the camera lens has been on Joseph. For three, the last three chapters, it's been on him in the land of Egypt. But now the, 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 the camera suddenly pans and we go back to the land of Canaan. And it's kind of this meanwhile back at the ranch sort of opening to chapter 42. And what we see is that this famine has created a great uh, severe trial there in the land of Canaan. In fact, it's kind of humorous to me because... You get this picture of this old patriarch Jacob, and he's there, and he's looking at his, at his sons, and his sons are just all kind of standing around looking at one another. And it's as if he says, is that the best that you guys can come up with to do? I mean, my dad is sitting right here this morning, and there was more than one time in my life that he looked at me and said, is the best that you can do is just sit there? Is that, is that, is that what you can? And so evidently, these guys could do, figure out nothing else to do except just stare at one another. But Jacob says, I've heard via the internet that was obviously in place at the time that, that there's grain down in Egypt. Why aren't you guys going to Egypt to find grain for us? Notice what he says in verse 2. I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us. Listen, that we may live and not die. There you get the severity of the famine. There you really get the context that tells you just how severe this famine was. This was a life or death situation. The, the famine had depleted all of their food reserves. It had, it had probably dried up all of their wells of the water. There was no, no food growing. The land was barren. And if all his sons could do was stand there and look at one another, he says, we're all going to starve to death. So immediately what we are confronted with is the dark providence of God, of, of the famine that God allowed to take place. It was the famine that created the scenario in which these ten older brothers mount up and take off and head to Egypt to buy grain. Now, notice this piece of information. Jacob did not send his youngest son Benjamin with him. 
Benjamin was the full brother of Joseph, born to the long since deceased Rachel. And, and, and Jacob would not send Benjamin with the ten older ones, he says, unless something happens to him too. And so it's just the ten older brothers who leave the land of Canaan because of the famine and they go to Egypt to seek food. Really, they go there to seek salvation because they, they would die if they stayed in Canaan. And what they don't know is that before they can find the salvation that they seek, they will have to be reconciled to the brother that they treated so poorly and sold into slavery 20 years before. And here's what we need to realize from the first few verses as Bruce Waltke has written. He says, through the famine, God initiates the suffering that begins the process of reconciliation. Let me say that one more time. Through, through the famine, God initiates the suffering that begins the process of reconciliation. Another has put it this way. They said, worldwide famine creates the backdrop for the family drama that is about to unfold, whereby Joseph's brothers are forced to confront their past. So, famine is the first dark providence. It's the first severe mercy that we encounter in this text. But notice the next one that I've listed for you there on your outline. The second point is this. It's accusations. Accusations. Once Joseph's ten other older brothers get to Egypt, they went to a city where they could buy grain. And according to verse 7, though they didn't recognize him, it was there that they encountered Joseph, who, the scriptures tell us, was the governor over the land. And that, that term, governor, it, it's a word that, that literally means Joseph was the one who had complete power over everything that was going on. He was the one who, who controlled what went on inside of Egypt. It's no wonder then, out of deference and out of respect, that we read that the brothers all came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now, what I want to point out to you, though, is interesting, is that this encounter in and of itself shows us that God's hand was at work. Consider the fact that Egypt was a very large country, and Egypt had a number of large cities, and those cities had a number of people from foreign lands that were coming to there in order to get grain. But in God's divine grace and in according to his divine plan, Joseph was in the exact city where his brothers came that day. And I want you to know that was not luck. It was not happenstance. It was God's providence that Joseph would be there. But I would suggest to you that from Joseph's brother's perspective, it was a dark providence that Joseph was there. It was a severe mercy that it was Joseph that they encountered. You see, consider the fact that though the brothers all come and bow down to Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph. And according to verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. What's clear is that Joseph was the one who was in the position of advantage. He was the one who had the advantage over the ten brothers. They, he knew who they were, but they only thought they knew who he was. They only thought that he was the most important man in Egypt at the time. They had no idea that the man standing in front of them was the brother that they had treated so badly and sold as a slave 20 years earlier. And the truth is, we could go so far as to say this. Joseph knew these guys with terrifying intimacy. He knew exactly what they were capable of. He had witnessed it firsthand. 
No one else in the whole nation of Egypt knew exactly what these guys were, but Joseph knew what they were. And he was in the position to hold over them the power of life and death. Now, many question why Joseph didn't immediately reveal himself to his brothers. I mean, why did he pretend to be a stranger? Why did he talk so harshly and roughly to them after all these years? Some have suggested that he was being vindictive. Some have said that he was, he was enacting some vengeance upon his brothers for what they had done. But I would suggest to you that based upon the details that we read this morning and, and also from what we continue to see revealed to us over the next couple, two or three chapters, that I would say that that proves that vengeance was not a motivating factor for Joseph. In fact, note that once Joseph asks his brothers to tell him where they're from and why they're in Egypt, according to verse 9, Moses tells us that Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know we go back to these dreams of Joseph week after week after week. They, they play a major role in understanding this entire section. And I believe that Joseph went back to these dreams again and again and again. Back in chapter 37, God gave Joseph two dreams. In both of those dreams, the end result was is that all 11 of Joseph's brothers, as well as his father and all of his family, all bowed down to him. And Joseph goes back to the, remembering those dreams, and I can't help but think, that while he's standing there in that city and he looks out and he sees all his brothers bowed down before him in respect, now I know what I'd have done. I'd have said, ha, those dreams ain't so stupid now, are they, boys? Huh? You made fun of me all those other years ago, but look what you're doing. You're bowing down to me just like I said you would. That's what I would have done. Joseph doesn't do that. Here's the thing. Joseph went back and remembered those dreams, but remember it was only 10 of his brothers who were bowing down to him. The dreams that God had given him said, all 11 will bow down to you. In addition to the sun and the moon, which represented his father and his mother. And Joseph, I believe, realized that though those dreams at least partially were being fulfilled, they had not been completely fulfilled for him. God had not brought everything to pass as he had revealed that it would. But then I also think that being reunited with his brothers, though his brothers didn't realize that a reunion had occurred, Joseph realized that God had placed him in a position of power for a purpose. In order, to, in order for him to be able to be the protector and the preserver of his family. I believe that Joseph realized that he had been given great power and he had been given great prestige, but that God had given these favors to him for a purpose greater than merely seeking revenge. And therefore, I believe that Joseph realized that leadership involved authority, but that it also brought upon him a great weight of responsibility. That's why I believe that he concealed his identity. That's why I believe that he spoke to them as harshly as he did, because he didn't want to reveal too much too soon. In fact, he even accuses them of being spies. Four times in this text, he accuses his brothers of espionage. And I think that's a little interesting. He says, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you've come to find out where we are undefended so that you can come back later and come steal all our food and take it back to your country. And, and what's interesting is, is that they, they immediately say, no, 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 we haven't come to spy on you. We've only come to buy food. And then they say this in verse 11, we are all one man's son, we are honest men. 
Your servants are not spies. Now, it's true they weren't spies, but come on. You're going to tell me you're honest? In our previous study, we already know what Reuben was capable of. We've already seen what Simeon and Levi were capable of doing. We've already read the story of Judah, and we know just how dishonest he was. You're going to come and tell us that you're honest? I, I, I promise you, jo Joseph knew these boys better than, he, than they thought he did. But then he accuses them of being spies yet again. And in verse 13, they say, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. You begin to understand that in accusing them of being spies, Joseph was able to gain more information about them than he would have gotten if he had not done so. In his accusation of them being spies, they started offering all kinds of information like, look, our father is still back in Canaan, and we've got a younger brother that's still with him. Now, that's two pieces of information that Joseph would have desperately wanted to know. He knew the ten brothers were here, but now, now he knew that his father was still alive, and he knew his younger brother was still alive and with his father. But the most ironic thing is, is that they look at him and say, one is no more. Well, yeah, he is. He's right in front of them, but they don't know it. So Joseph looks at him, and now that he's got this information, he says, look, I'm going to test you to see just how honest you are. You say you're honest men. Let's see just how honest you are. One of you is going to go back to your homeland in Canaan, and you're going to bring your youngest brother back with you, and the rest of you are going to stay here. And that brings me to the third point that I want you to see. The third dark providence in the life of these brothers is imprisonment. Imprisonment. Verse 17 says this, Joseph put them all together in prison three days. Now, think about it. Just a week or so earlier, they were in Canaan and being chastised by their father for just standing around looking at one another. But a week later, now they're in an Egyptian prison cell, and what are they doing? Standing around and looking at one another. He put them all together in one prison cell. And don't think that that was unintentional. It was very intentional for them to have to converse with one another. And what were they talking about? They were trying to figure out which one of us is going to go back to dad. Which one of us is going to go back to Canaan and tell dad that we've got to bring our youngest brother Benjamin here. Now, I would suggest to you that the thought of having to go face Jacob and tell Jacob that they had to take Benjamin back to Egypt most of them probably would say, we'll just stay here in the prison cell. That's fine. We'll stay here. You, somebody else go. And they were trying to figure out who was going to draw the short straw to go back to Canaan. And it's here that I think we need to be reminded of something. You see, for the past 20 years, these brothers had to witness firsthand the grief that they had caused their father. In their hatred of Joseph, they had sold him into slavery. And to cover up their deed, they had taken his coat of many colors that his father had given to him. And they had dipped it in goat's blood, giving the appearance that Joseph had been torn apart and killed by wild animals. And then when they presented that coat to Joseph so that he could draw from it his own conclusions, Genesis 37 tells us this, that Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and he mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons... And all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Now we might think that 20 years would have caused some of that grief to, 
subside. But the fact of the matter was, it was on his mind all the time. In fact, that was why he would not let his son Benjamin go down there. In case the same fate were to occur to him. And in fact, at the end, when he is presented with the scenario of having to send Benjamin back, he says, I will not send him. You sh he shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. You see, the death of Joseph, as far as Jacob was concerned, was something that constantly weighed on him. And what is obvious is that for these ten brothers, they are now confronted with not only the terror-filled reality of being imprisoned, for being spies, but they are reminded of the excruciating pain and anguish that they personally caused their father. But that's not all. Notice, notice that after three days, Joseph brings them out of the prison and then he abruptly changes the conditions of their release. Before he said, one's going to go back and the other nine of you are going to stay. But once he releases them from prison, he says, I've had a change, I've changed my mind. Nine of you are going to go back, and one of you is going to stay. And many have wondered, well, why does he do that? Well, from my perspective, and I'm just, I'm just a dummy from North Hall, but I can kind of figure this thing out a little bit. One guy going back to Canaan couldn't take near as much grain back to Canaan as nine guys could. And you understand, Joseph has a heart for his family, for his father, for his extended family that all still reside in Canaan. And so he says, look, nine of you can go back and you load your camels up and your donkeys up with all the grain that you can take. And in this regard, Joseph was extending grace and mercy to the brothers and to their families, even if they didn't recognize it. And furthermore, now rather than having to figure out which one brother was going to go back, they all kind of looked at one another and go, which one of us gets to stay? And evidently, evidently, that thought brought back to their minds that moment back in the fields of Dothan 20 years before when they bound their younger brother Joseph up and they threw him into that empty well. They went back and we studied that. We realized Moses doesn't tell us this, but these brothers remembered it. They said to one another in verse 21, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Don't miss that point. You see, these brothers were more perceptive than we might have originally thought. Back at the beginning of this chapter, they're presented to us as a bunch of indolent, lazy, uh, slothful men who evidently didn't possess enough gumption to go to Egypt to do what they needed to do to provide for their families. And from everything else that we've learned about them so far in our study of Genesis, both individually and collectively, we have come to realize there's not very many redeeming qualities for which we can take note of. And for the past 20 years, we recognize that they had held a secret among themselves, a secret that they no doubt wished to keep secret. It was a treachery done that they had kept covered up and that they hoped would never come to light. But then God, through a series of dark providences and severe mercies, had brought these brothers to their knees. First of all, it came about as a result of a, a severe famine that threatened their lives. And then by a powerful governor who accused them of being spies. And then by that same governor throwing them into prison. And through that series of events, all that they had, they had kept covered up in secret was now back out in the open. 
And that's what leads me to the last point that I want you to note on your outline this morning. And it's this. It's confession. Confession. You see, it's their confession that we read there in verse 21. And notice that even though they don't know that it's Joseph who is in their presence, they no longer refer to him as that dreamer. That's what they called him back in chapter 37. He was the dreamer. They don't call him that here in verse 21. They call him our brother. And here's where I want to bring you back to something. When they got thrown in prison back in verse 17, they probably thought they were thrown in prison for no good reason. They weren't spies. But here's where we learn that they recognized, yeah, we did have a reason to get thrown into prison. Verse 21, they say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. Chuck Swindoll has written this. He says, the first step toward activating a seared conscience is taking responsibility for our own personal guilt. The brothers did not blame their father for being passive. They didn't blame their brother Joseph for being proud or arrogant or favored. They did not diminish the wrong that they had committed by saying that they were too young and didn't know any better. No, they used the right pronoun when they agreed, we are responsible. There's no one else that we can blame. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are there things floating around in your past that you have refused to take responsibility for and for which you refuse to admit your own personal guilt? I want you to know that God, in his great love for you, will pursue you. Sometimes he will do it through the warmth of his smile. But sometimes, as Joseph's brothers found out, he will do it through his dark providences. He will pursue you through his severe mercies. And he will do that in order to bring you to the point of acknowledging your guilt. Now let me be clear and hear me, hear me very clearly here. Not every bad thing and hard circumstance that comes into your life is there for that purpose. But sometimes they are. And you may wonder, well, how can I tell the difference? How can I know? We can pray the same prayer that the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139 verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. You see, we should ask God to bring conviction into our lives so that we may see ourselves the way that he sees us. And the fact is that conviction sometimes is brought about through hardships, through God's dark providences and through his severe mercies. And I want you to notice that our passage closes with the brothers they don't know that Joseph can understand all that they're saying. They don't recognize it because he's been speaking to them through a translator. But here is Joseph, the one whom they have sinned against. And he's so tender-hearted toward them that he has to leave their presence to go and weep in another room. And here's the irony of that scene. The one, of, the one that these brothers had offended was the very one who held their lives in his hands. And he was the same one who showed them mercy and grace, though we'll have to wait to chapter 45 to actually see the fulfillment of that come about. But I want you to know that such a scene like that is more than mere irony. It's the message of the gospel. And it's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. 
which is this. In his great love for us, God often uses dark providences and severe mercies to reveal our sin and to lead us to repentance and reconciliation with him. Do you understand that? That sometimes when the things that we come into our lives that we hate so much and we push back against and it thinks this was so terrible, this was God's love in sending it so that it might bring about reconciliation and repentance of sin. When I think about how God used the dark providences of, of the famine and the accusations and the imprisonment to bring his brothers to the point of confessing their guilt, I'm also reminded of the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose was to bring them out and to save them. In many ways, I'm reminded when I read this story, and I was this week, I was reminded of the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. Jesus tells it. If you remember that story, as long as the money lasted and the wine was flowing, the prodigal son was living large. And he didn't have in his mind whatsoever all of the things that he had done, the way he had broken his father's heart by telling him he wanted his inheritance to go and to leave home. But then that son ended up in a pig pen and he was starving and he was broke. And make no mistake about it, the pig pen was God's dark providence. The pig pen was God's severe mercy because it forced the son to come to the end of himself. And when he did, he said this, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. But the scriptures say that while the boy was still a long ways off, the father saw him. And the father ran toward him and he bear hugged him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him and he just showered him with love and he picked him up and he told his servants, you go get the finest robe that we've got and put it on him. Go get a ring and put it on his finger and put sandals on his feet. Why? Because this was my son who was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. That is the purpose of God's dark providences and his severe mercies is to bring us to the point where we realize we have sinned against him, but he stands there open-armed, ready to receive any and all sinners who will come to the recognition that they are sinners and that they need his grace and that they need his mercy. That is what it means to be saved. It means that it begins by acknowledging your guilt and asking the Lord to cleanse you of that guilt and to save you for Jesus' sake. My guess is there are some of you who may look back across the events of your life and wonder why they have unfolded as they have. In fact, right now, you may be facing some of God's dark providences and his severe mercies. The truth is, God may be bringing those circumstances into your life to remove the things that you are prone to place your faith and confidence in so that he can bring you to the place where he brought these brothers to the awareness of your great need so that you will turn and discover the provision that he offers you in Jesus Christ. As one has put it, it is only when God shows to us that the cupboard of our own ingenuity is bare that we will then go humbly to he who is the bread of life. My prayer 
is that each and every single one of us will run. We will run to the bread of life because he stands there with open arms ready to receive all who will come to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. I stand before a congregation of people representing exactly what we have looked at this morning. One who ran far away from you, rebelled against your word, but one who found mercy and grace when I turned to you. And the truth of the matter is, there's not a believer in this room today who has not experienced the same thing. Grace and mercy extended to undeserving sinners. That is the message of the gospel, but it we recognize sometimes that we can allow the circumstances of our lives to drive us away from you, or we can see them as you see them, as ways of drawing us to you and drawing us to your grace and mercy. I pray that that would take place all across this room this morning. Some maybe for the very first time. And so if they, those who come to conviction of their sin before you today would be willing to to bow their knee before you and confess their guilt and humbly ask you to save them, I pray that that would happen. For your glory and for your honor and for their good. And then for the rest of us, we know that that's how we came to faith in Christ to begin with, and yet we still recognize we need to continue to come to you. So I pray that you would encourage our hearts today and help us to see ourselves as you see us. I pray this in Christ's holy name.